Hello and welcome to the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and on today's episode, we have Scott Frizzell back, continuing our Torah series with a look at everyone's favorite book, Leviticus. I know I know when I when I kind of read through the Old Testament sometimes I also skim or even skip over Leviticus. It is a tough and dense book. There's some really weird sections of Leviticus and things that maybe we aren't comfortable reading aloud to our children uh, at night as we study through the Bible. But I think at the core of Leviticus there is the story of sin and uncleanliness and then of course atonement and holiness and I think that is relevant to us even today. And Scott will do an excellent job with this, I'm sure. So without further ado, let me go ahead and hand it over to Scott. All right, Leviticus, the favorite book in the Bible for everyone who doesn't believe in God. (laughs) For real. Like when I was doing some Google searches on Leviticus, just for fun, man, there's a lot of blogs that do not like Leviticus or the Bible because of it. So uh, we're going to talk about Leviticus, but we're not going to start right away because if any of you ever spent any time reading Leviticus, it is hard to stay focused (laughs) all the way through Um, because it's, man, rule after rule and explanation of feasts and sacrifices, uh, details that just get a little wearing, I'm not going to lie. So first... We're going to start by talking about uh, this weekend, uh, or this past week. I don't know how many of you guys participated or observed or watched, but this last week we uh, had big stuff in the city of Memphis for MLK 50, the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination, which of course was in Memphis. So as your history teacher, teacher, now I'm of course going to talk about it for a little bit. So uh, did anybody get to watch anything or go see anything or aware of anything? Yeah, thank you for the hand. I appreciate it, Lauren. All right, so uh, it kind of got me thinking. So what I did with my class, I don't know why I didn't think of actually taking them downtown, which probably would have been a great moment. Um, I didn't. They were really mad about it, too. Um, They should have said something earlier. Um, We live streamed a lot of it in class and watched it. Um, It was a block day for a block class. We had like an hour and a half of just watching these speeches and stuff. And one of the speeches that I really enjoyed uh, was a history professor, and they had brought him in to redesign the museum about five years back. They shut the museum down for about a year, and they did this massive renovation and update um, and totally changed not just the way it was inside, but kind of the message of the museum about the civil rights movement. And one of the things that he said was, um, we have changed the way we view Dr. King by the way we have memorialized him which is one of my speaking points in class, kind of the idea once you build a monument to something, the real person starts to fade away with time. So we've got a bit, we made a big deal out of a Dr. King, so a lot of Dr. King has kind of disappeared over time as we've kind of focused on the uh, March on Washington speech and now the monument in DC and then a balcony in Memphis and the rest of it kind of fades away, some of the other stuff he said um, and done. So it kind of got me thinking about monuments and memory. So um, what we build or put up out there or what we celebrate influences how we remember things and influences our culture because of that, okay? So I was thinking about King, but so I snagged some pictures. Um, I actually Googled famous monuments and these were the top four hits for me. Uh, So read into that what you will. I think the bottom ones came up because I'm teaching ancient history this year and Google knows that. So in the bottom left, this is a step pyramid in Central America. Uh, For the Aztecs, of course, this is the ruins of the Parthenon. Recognize the top right, anybody? 
Anybody? Iwo Jima, thank you, people. And somebody knows the one in the top left, yes? Eiffel Tower, very good, Kyle. No, yes, the Statue of Liberty. So, quick thought process. We're gonna have to speak for this, so we're gonna have to be a little more bold with our words, guys. What does each of these communicate from a visual perspective, okay? So this is like history or art class, I think. So put your, your thinking cap on. So let's start with the top left, Statue of Liberty. What kind of ideas, images, thoughts does that give you when you see it? Liberty. Why? It's in the name. <laughs> Not a lot of deep thinkers today. Freedom as well. Freedom, okay. Hope. Or even like welcome. Yeah. Peace. There's a gift from France mm -hmm, on the centennial. Um, yeah, see, that's where the Eiffel Tower came from. No. Um, right? There's certainly uh, examples of narratives of immigrants coming to the United States, and that's the first thing they see, right? So kind of popularly, it becomes associated with welcome and freedom, and right? It's kind of, it's out there on the very edge of New York City, right? It's not in Kansas, so the location says something, right? Um, what about uh, Iwo Jima? What kind of emotions or ideas does that monument evoke? Victory, perseverance. perseverance, yeah. World domination. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely world domination. Like a team working together. Team. Sacrifice. Uh huh. Sacrifice. How does it uh, make you feel, or what? What is? What kind of ideas or emotions is it trying to get us to feel towards the United States and towards the flag? It's worth fighting for. Worth fighting for. Pride, reverence, right? We're all getting shot at, but the four of us are going to put this flag up because this flag is a symbol of something that's really important to us, right? Okay? I'm not going to make you talk about the bottom two because it's ancient history. But I would say that the Parthenon is on the highest point in Athens, right? Uh, and it is placed there so that people will see it. And in the middle of the Parthenon, at least back in the day, or in Nashville if you go there, was a big statue of Athena for whom Athens is named, right? So the idea is that this is the centerpiece of our city, this is the most important thing in our city, and that tells you something about where those people's lives comes from, right? We could talk about Step Pyramid, Reaching the Heavens, but we're not gonna waste time. So, uh, Memphis Monuments, though, uh, we've got, oh, no, back. I deleted the slide. I had Memphis Monuments. I had uh, Forrest, naturally, had uh, Elvis, he's downtown, uh, and then I had Tom Lee in Tom Lee Park. So if you haven't seen those, you should Google them sometime. Uh, but the monuments that a place, that a city or a country chooses to erect and where they choose to erect them communicates something, right? On the most basic level, we say that it chooses to communicate who we like or who we honor or some great accomplishment. But beyond that, it also says something about shared values, right? The fact that there's been so much tumult in Memphis over the forest statue says that there is some conflict within our culture in Memphis about the values that Forrest has come to represent. Whether he represented them or not, we're not going to talk about that because I don't want to open a can of worms, and I promised Ashley I wouldn't get political. Um, <laughs> although I don't think she's going to listen, so I think I could and we'd be okay. Um, but all the same, the idea is that those statues mean something, right? And they serve a purpose beyond simply 
making a park look prettier, right? They're trying to communicate something and then they're trying to reiterate something that we as a culture want everyone else to continue doing, right? Which is why when eventually monuments start to look really bad in a current moment, it goes, okay, maybe we should reassess that. Okay. Leviticus does a lot of the same thing. There's no monuments in the book of Leviticus, but it talks about a lot of rites, rituals, feasts, things that are repeated over and over again, time and time again. And on their face, a lot of them look really weird. Okay? That's why I like the Memphis monuments. I like the Tom Lee Memorial, but I also think it looks kind of strange, like kind of hovering in air the way it does. You should look at it. Um, but they mean something, right? They are reinforcing these ideas and thoughts about God and man's relationship to God that is incredibly valuable. And there's a reason they're practiced despite how strange they might seem or uh, what values, uh, because it's the values underneath what's going on that's even more important than the specifics of the rules themselves, although they are fascinating. So we're gonna watch the video on Leviticus uh, and then we'll pick up from there, we'll do a little review. So uh, here we go with Leviticus. Okay, so uh, last week, uh, Peter talked about the last half of Exodus um, and we were setting up where we are now. So basically, uh, where we were left with was we had the instructions for how to build the tabernacle. God's presence is in the tabernacle, but kind of as it looks on the top right, top left corner of your cartoon, I guess, uh, Moses can't enter. Okay, that's the central problem of Leviticus is that nobody um, is pure enough to enter and be in God's presence because God's presence is so much greater, holier, awesomer than any man, so that separation is too significant. At the end of Leviticus, if you look in the other corner, you see that Moses is able to worship from within uh, the tabernacle uh, going into the book of Numbers. So we know that what happens in Leviticus resolves this central problem. So in that case, uh, the book of Leviticus is incredibly important, as strange as it may be to read, because um, it kind of shows how man uh, is going to be reconciled with God until Christ. Um, so Leviticus is probably one of the most important books in the Old Testament, which is of course ironic because we don't like to spend too much time in it because it's really complicated. So um, I really like the structure, uh, the way the video structured it out for us. So we're gonna kind of copy uh, that. Oh, see, there's my slides. <laughs> see, the Tom Lee one is weird. He's kind of floating in air. Anyway, um, so first, rituals, okay? Um, They've outlined kind of feasts, sacrifices, what to do to make up for your sin. Uh, the kind of the rule I always told my kids when I taught this in fifth grade, we did three weeks on Leviticus, uh, was the worst thing you did, the bigger the animal you're going to kill is, basically. Uh, and there's a whole lot of rules on what type of animal, and it can't be an animal that has any problems, or like, I'm going to use this animal because he's done having kids, and uh, we'll just send him off to pasture at the altar. No, you're supposed to pick your prized animal, right? Because that shows respect for God, right? That shows that you want to work your greatest and give up your greatest assets to be reunited with him. So there's a lot of uh, imagery in these uh, things also. So feasts, holidays. I think a great example here is Passover, right? We talked about Passover in Exodus. And the idea is that it's continually reoccurring, right? Continually being celebrated because it's this reminder. Just as those monuments serve a purpose of enforcing some cultural ideas that we value, the Passover is reminding the Israelites regularly every year the strength and power of their God who delivered them out of Egypt, out of slavery, um, and is kind of fostering that deep respect. Um, I think that may be something that's faded a little bit for us as modern Christians who are generally scared of the book of Leviticus and most of the Old Testament. Um, the other picture um, 
is scripture in the doorframe of a Jewish house. That's modern. That's not an old one. So I forget the Hebrew word for this. Anyone? Eric? What was it? Sorry. Mezuzah. Mezuzah. One more time louder. Yes. I had to Google it. I was like, what is that thing called? Right? It's the idea that the wall, that scripture is supporting your house, right? Your house is built upon scripture. Um, it is both an image and a metaphor, but it is also, right, literally the word of God in your house when you're leaving your house. Kind of like, I don't know if you've ever done this where you put a post-it note somewhere to remind yourself to take your lunch or to remind yourself of a scripture, like I really need this scripture this week, so I'm going to put it on my steering wheel or on my desk. I've got one on my desk uh, to be patient with people. Um, whatever that is, right? So um, the ancient Jews and even modern Jews, really, who have embedded their lives through the book of Leviticus have taken these basic roots that are in Leviticus and taken them out into their lives in other ways too. So their respect for God's greatness and his holiness expands outside of what Leviticus outlines. One of my personal favorites um, is uh, I was in a class, undergrad maybe? It was an undergrad, it was on the Holocaust, whole semester on the Holocaust, most depressing class ever, very valuable but very depressing. Um, and one of the things that we talked about was how uh, Jewish people have such a healthy respect for God's greatness and for his name, right? Not repeating his name out loud, that also they won't write it. I was confused because I had a Jewish student sitting next to me, and every time they wrote a paper, wherever it would say God instead of God, it was the G-D. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, is that code for something? I don't know. And I felt really stupid later um, for asking. But the idea that I'm not going to write that name because A, I'm not holy or righteous enough to do so. But secondly, one day this paper is going to be thrown away. And I don't want anyone to throw away the name of God, okay? I don't think that's really a respect that we appreciate uh, in Western culture, and especially not kind of in modern Christian culture. And the idea that these actions that are repeated over time, what that does to how people view God, how they understand their relationship with God. We've talked before, uh, earlier, I think it was in whatever the previous series was, kind of bro Jesus, right? The idea that Jesus is our friend and we're pals, and that's good, that's certainly something valuable, but at the same time, we've got to balance that with this healthy respect for the greatness and, and awe for God that we get when we look at these first five books more closely. So I think while the rituals, if you look at them in detail, it feels weird, it feels old, it feels out of place when you're reading about all the different animals that can and can't be sacrificed and how you sacrifice them and where you put the blood and all that stuff. But when we look at the meaning that sits below it, and then, the, and then the subsequent actions that Jews have taken to add on to those rituals because they're understanding the purpose behind them, they take on a lot more power for kind of um, the, the fear and the love and the respect for God's greatness. The second major thread was the priesthood. So Aaron's the high priest at the time of Leviticus, or the, and the first high priest. Eventually his sons will take over, although you'll notice in the graphic uh, some of his sons get killed because uh, they enter into the Holy of Holies unannounced. And that does not go well. Um, kind of goes back to this righteous level, a uh, holy level of respect for God's greatness, for God's presence, right? And some of the things that I find really interesting if you look through the priesthood, the idea that you have a group of people within the civilization, within the ancient uh, Israel civilization that are held to a higher standard because they're the people that are interacting the most with God. So they have less room for error. They have higher expectations in how they will treat people, how they will hold themselves accountable, what they will and will not eat. Um, and it sets a very prominent example. They are in a place of respect within the community, right? 
It's not like the preachers today, right, Eric? <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, no, so they have really the power within the civilization, okay? Um, especially when we're looking at the books of the Torah, before we get to kings and all that stuff. These are the highly respected, controlling people within a civilization, um, and they're setting that standard um, in everything that they do. Um, there's a burden to that. Um, what to do when things aren't going well. We saw Aaron and the golden calf and not wanting to take ownership. I think kind of the reverse opposite is true of his grandson, Phineas, who's one of the next high priests, Aaron, Eleazar, then Phineas. Uh, so in the book of Numbers, sorry, who's teaching Numbers next week? Kevin. Good, he's not here to hear me steal some of this. Um, in the book of Numbers, uh, an Israelite brings a Canaanite woman into camp with him and they go to his tent to, yeah, no. Um, and um, Phineas is like, all the people are like, what's going on? This is against God's law. This is a huge deal. And he's like so casual about it. So Phineas, who's one of the priests, just grabs a spear, walks into the tent and spears them both through and then like walks out and everyone's like, right? Because he says, this isn't just breaking some law that we're going to, you know, punish him for. This is offensive to God. This is taking something that God has clearly said is not good and is not okay, and he's doing it in the public with no shame. This is serious, and I'm going to step up, not as a punitive measure, but to show my protection for God, my respect for God's holiness and God's greatness. Not saying you should start spearing people, Eric. Um, but, right, it's this idea that they are the protectors, right? There's someone who, when things start going awry, is going to feel forced to step up because that is their role, right? And a lot of times I think that's another thing that's kind of slipped for us since Leviticus, right? We don't always have as many, certainly, people who feel that call to step in and shut down stuff when it happens, not just because it's breaking some rule that we feel like in some sense of justice it needs to be accounted for, right? But it's an idea of respecting God's holiness, God's greatness, um, for sure. Then the kind of the flip side is though, it's very dangerous to be a priest, right? Because you're in charge of interacting with God's presence, which as they mentioned in the video is dangerous, powerful, awesome, all those things, right? Um, kind of how we get the tradition of the, when the high priest goes in to offer sacrifice in the Holy of Holies and has to go in with like a rope tied around his waist or around his ankle, one of the two, so that if things go poorly and he dies, they can pull him out without having to go in there. Uh, he's got the bells, so you know if he's moving or not. Um, yeah, there's the bell. So I mean, but I think when we get past the weirdness of that to ourselves in our Western current culture, right? The idea that, yeah, he went into church and he died because it was the wrong day or because he had done something wrong recently. Like when we get past that and we look once again at the meaning that all these things are reinforcing, I think it's a bit more valid, right? And this idea that those who interact most closely with God are held to a high standard. And if we want to achieve such a closeness ourselves, right? That might have a similar message for us. So the last one, is purity. Um, and this is the, really the strangest, I think, of all of them when we're revisiting it, right? Because we've got the food laws, which we hear, hear a lot about, right? You've probably heard a lot about over time. So the, you know, no bacon, right? Um, the ideas of foods that are impure, but also ways that you interact with others and the way that you treat your body, of course. This is where we have our prohibition on tattoos. Leviticus 19.28, so I'm not sure how ironic this person is. Like, I've been trying to figure this out since I found the picture. Um, there was another one that I didn't put in here, but it was like they'd actually gotten the whole scripture written out, like not just the citation. And it was like, do not tattoo your body. It's like, I can't tell if they're like a Christian who just like 
doesn't buy Leviticus, or they just like got a really ironic tattoo. Um, but these are the things that I think seem the strangest and most out of place um, in Leviticus. Um, I was talking to Ashley about it last night. I was telling her what I was teaching on and kind of what, Levit- what was up in Leviticus. And we read it together many years ago, and she didn't remember. She's like, which one was that? And I was like, that was the one that said, um, if you're on your period, I can't go sit in the seat where you sat because it's now unclean. And she was like, oh, yeah, that one. Uh, it, made a, it made an impact when we read it together when we were dating. Um, but wasn't smart to start in Genesis and go the way through. We should have, like, thematically done that. Um, But it's this idea of this unclean and clean, and that in order to be in God's presence, you have to be clean. And I think this is something that causes kind of a mental problem for us, right? The idea that you can be in a place that is not right to be in the presence of God, right? Because that kind of flies in the face of how we we see things as Christians because of Christ. Um, And I think what happens is that culturally it gets lumped in where if you're unclean, it's, it's a bad thing. And the video says it's not, and it's on there in big letters on the, on the graphic, but I think that's something that we kind of lose, right? The idea that being unclean is somehow bad, but I don't think that's all on us. Like, I think that's on Jews, actually, because we see over time, as Jewish history goes on, unclean really does start to be seen as sinful, right? People who are regularly unclean, they are lesser people. Um, or people who are unclean, who can't become clean, or, or outsiders, right? They are something less than us, right? Kind of um, the idea behind clean and unclean is that being clean, uh, Israelites, when they follow these laws, it sets them apart, right? It says we are God's people, and that's all, all well and good. But how you're viewing those people who are unclean and how, who are not set apart uh, radically changes that. I think we see that um, just a little bit later on uh, in the Bible, actually. By the time we get to the New Testament, um, it's a very different, it's kind of taken on a life of its own. Um, We could sit around and talk about reasons why for a while, and there's a lot of theories, but there's no answer. So I didn't really feel like wasting too much time on it. You could do that on your own. My favorite has always been health-related, kind of looking at some of the benefits of a lot of the things that are marked as um, impure, in the ancient world, it helps increase uh, general hygiene and health to follow them. Uh, a lot of foods that are unclean, it would be kind of iffy if you could make sure that they were safe to eat in the ancient world, uh, all those types of things. So that's per- my personal favorite, but there are other theories out there. Um, but once again, I think the important thing to kind of drill out of all three sections is the ideas behind it, right? What is What ideas are they reinforcing and what's the purpose rather than getting lost in the really tricky specifics um, of each of them. Um, And then also kind of the idea that, yeah, this stuff is weird, but it's super countercultural for the ancient world, okay? Um, In ancient Mesopotamia, the gods don't have laws. They just get mad and kill people, or don't, or do, right? Um, It's totally, uh, there's no chain of reaction. People can't explain it, okay? Um, So when things happen, well, why did he die? Well, he, he ticked off the gods. How? I don't know. Another person does the same thing, nothing happens. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't interested anymore. Like, they're literally depicted as kind of apathetic, um, which is so strange, right? Uh, and the same is actually kind of true of Egyptian gods, right? They don't really have any clear-cut, like, here's what you do, here's what you don't do. So God is incredibly countercultural. We think that today for Christianity, but even here in Leviticus, when he's doing weird things that were like, oh, well, that's only the ancient world. Even within the ancient world, 
This is incredibly countercultural to set his people apart with these restrictions, which at least some of are helping them with hygiene, right? But also to say, this is how you are right with God, and this is how you are not. And it's as easy as that. And when you end up in the not, here's the path to get back to the right. That's not a progression that's outlined elsewhere in the ancient world. Usually once you've wronged a God, you're kind of begging and hopefully they say yes, and if not, right? Um, so I think that's incredibly important when we look at this too. Um, so then of course, we kind of get towards the so what, okay? Um, the Day of Atonement's in the middle of the book, right? Um, the idea, by the way, I googled Leviticus cartoons just to see what came up. Most of them are inappropriate. Um, <laughs> be warned. I did it on my school computer, so now I'm really regretting that. Um, you have to go talk to the director of technology. Um, so, so what, right? They ended with the Day of Atonement in the middle, and I think the Day of Atonement is the perfect place to kind of focus on for us as Christians and how this connects with us, right? So they explain the Day of Atonement in pretty good detail um, in the video, right? The idea that once a year, all of Israel's sins are being washed away, um, some, the goat's blood is taking their place on the altar, and then the rest of them are placed on a goat and sent out of camp, like never to be remembered or seen again, like they're gone forever. Um, I mean, that imagery is pretty familiar, right? Like Christ's sacrifice and the idea of his blood atoning for us and for those sins never being in our mind again, never to be seen or thought of or concerned with again, like, I mean, that's pretty much the same thing. It's just in different language right? It's the same idea. The only difference, of course, is that the Day of Atonement has to happen annually, right? Happens every single year because there's a new buildup, right? Whereas Christ's sacrifice is all the way backwards and all the way forwards, um, which is especially unique. But so for us as Christians, when we look at Christ's sacrifice, we're not looking at something that is, I mean, it is different, but not wildly different than the plan that he had already set out for people in Leviticus, okay? I think that's another problem we have with Leviticus and kind of the Old Testament. We look at it and we say, well, that was the Old Testament. Things are really different now. Yes and no, right? There's so many similarities. It's clearly God's part of God's plan from the whole get-go, right? They're linked. It's not like this was plan A, plan A blew up, here's plan B, right? It's a connected plan. So I think that's one significant aspect of it. Um, I also really like, so after seven days of atonement, Every seven, because seven's a, the perfect biblical number, right? There's a big feast. And then after seven of those, so every 49 to 50 years, depending how you count it, right? You have the big feast, the biggest one of all, the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee uh, is super fascinating. Last year was a year of Jubilee. Um, the idea that in the year of Jubilee, property goes back to whoever originally owned it. Um, there's these massive feasts. You let the crops lie, the, the fields lie fallow so they can recover. Um, everyone has this obligation, really, to make amends for all the ways that they have wronged people, even if it's a long-standing feud that like goes back for years. And it's what you're supposed to do. And I think it really underlines this idea that Christ has for his people. Or sorry, God, God has for his people. So the idea is, if rules that Israel's to live by are all spelled out in Leviticus, what do they tell us about the type of society that God wants his people to live in? Okay? He wants them to live in a society where they are close to him. He wants them to live in a society where regardless what they've done, there's a path back to him. No matter what bridge they've crossed or how far they've gone, there's not one too far. 
And he wants them to live in a society where they have a respect for each other, a love for each other, where there's not um, one or small groups of people who are dominating everyone else and pushing everyone else under the rug, right? It's, it's very equal, loving, and supporting. And that's, what, that's his vision for them. Um, but what I think we find out is that no matter how many rules you write, that message can get distorted. Um, I consider myself a loophole master, should have gone into law instead of teaching, although it does help me as a principal making up rules that people can't find their way out of. Um, when I was in high school, um, I was in band, and we were at Pep Band, and there was a new band director, um, and he said, for the for the football game tonight, when you come to the football game, you have to wear khakis. And so I said, okay. So I showed up in khaki shorts, because he did not say khaki pants. Uh, he was not happy about that, so he, next we, the next week he said, I'm, you're all going to wear khaki pants. So I wore khaki pants, but I did something else because he didn't spell that out. I became a real pain in his side. Now we're co-workers. Um, <laughs> technically, I'm his boss. No, um, But this idea that any rule, no matter how well-meaning it is, right, there's, it's not going to stick with it, right? There's a whole section that, where Christ preaches about uh, the spirit of the law, right? The idea that you can follow the law and totally reject its spirit, and there's no point in having followed it at all. And I think that's exactly what we see when we look at the New Testament and how the Jews have managed to use the book of Leviticus. There's lots of things that have survived, right? And where they've even expanded the rules, like we talked about earlier with the scriptures. But there's a lot of ways where it hasn't. So if you look in Acts, in uh, Acts 10, when uh, Peter receives a vision from God, um, he's about to go preach to Cornelius. This is when uh, new, the Christians find out that Gentiles are okay to be baptized and to be preached to. And so God sends this uh, vision to Peter, and he's sitting on a rooftop, and he's hungry, and God sends down this blanket full of unclean animals. And he says, eat. He's like, kill and eat. I know you're hungry. Uh, and Peter's response um, he says, surely not, Lord. This is verse 14. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now, on the one hand, that's pretty clearly God saying, yeah, Gentiles are okay to be baptized and to follow me. But on the other hand, I think it's speaking to what has developed within Jewish culture over the centuries since Leviticus, right? It's this idea that it people are naturally unclean and not as good as us and not deserving of Christ, right? That's not the spirit of Leviticus at all, but that's kind of what it gets twisted into by people who are practicing it. Um, and so what we end up with in Leviticus, we have this very countercultural call to this relationship with God uh, and this restoration that is at odds with everything else in the ancient world. And we have the same countercultural call today uh, it's just refined a little bit. It's almost like when God revisits it with Peter, he's saying, this was the point all along, and we lost it, right? Um, this love and this caring. Now, the covenant is now open to everybody, right? Not just the children of Abraham, so that's a significant difference. I don't want to push that under the rug, but the idea that um, that commitment, that love, that connection is still there. It's still, and it's still just as countercultural later on uh, as it was then. So, um, so Leviticus, in a nutshell, right, it provides that, that route to communion with Christ, to Christ and God, right? How do you enter his presence when we are inferior, unclean, uh, incapable of really surviving in his presence? It provides the route within Leviticus. 
and that meaning that was supposed to shape the lives of God's people, just like maybe memorials erected in our cities or in our countries today. Um, but it somehow got lost along the way by the time Christ shows up. Um, but he reiterates it in Acts for Jews who are following as well. So uh, that's all I got. Kyle? All right. Great job, Scott. Thank you so much for always doing an awesome job. Scott, has he's drawn three lessons in this Torah series, and so he did a, a part of Exodus, and now he's done Leviticus. He's also going to have Deuteronomy in a couple weeks. We'll have Kevin Betts with us visiting from the 2-2-2 class, and Kevin will do an awesome job with Deuteronomy. Uh, sorry, rather, Numbers. He's got Numbers next week. He'll be doing that and doing, like I said, an awesome job. I um, also want to say uh, a special word to Jawan and Shanice Davis. They'll be moving to Nashville. Uh, Shanice actually this week and then Jawan in about a month when school wraps up. And I uh, said uh, quite a few words in class, but uh, if you weren't there, really, really special couple. They've been with us for about six years at Highland and been extremely integral to this uh, ministry and to this class and just wish them the best and that, that God would guide them, lead them as they move to Nashville and along with both their kids, uh, Shania and Jacob as well. So uh, anyway, I hope this is a wonderful week for you. Uh, I do recommend these Bible Project videos if you're listening to this and there's like a kind of awkward pause there about 10 minutes into class. That's when we're watching about a five to six minute video on each of these books. They're extremely well produced. It's the Bible Project and you can find them under the name of the Torah and each book has one. Exodus and Genesis have two videos actually. So please check those out. Uh, we'd love to see you in person 10 a.m. on Sundays here in Cordova at Highland Church of Christ. That's where we meet. We are the Bridge Builders class. We would love for you to join us. And if not, then we do have some Facebook groups. We have a Highland Bridge Builders and also a Bridge Builders private forum, and you can join those. We'd love to have more of these sorts of conversations there. Have a great week, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.